Hey, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. And uh, that's where we're going to be this morning as we've been going through this series. We're in part 2 of one of our uh, messages here. But first I want to draw your attention to the screen. And I want you to look carefully at what you see. Are you ready? Okay. Now look carefully at it. Do you see it? Alright. That's, that's my, uh, that's my uh, visual representation of a blackout. That's a blackout right there. Yes, a blackout. You know what a blackout is, right? It's, it's when you know, the, the power grid fails, when power is unavailable and the world is dark. In many uh, East Coast blackouts, uh, power to homes in hundreds of square miles is often cut off. But then gradually, slowly, over time, power is made available again. It happens one neighborhood at a time. And soon a collective light emanates from one city and then to another and then to another. And soon the whole land has power. So also, Paul says, is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is going to tell you and me this morning in the book of Romans that the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, when it is proclaimed, inherent in it is a power and a righteousness from God that goes out and brings light and life everywhere it's proclaimed. When the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is plugged in, when it's proclaimed, the lights turn on. And the righteousness of God is being revealed. Paul says in one of his most famous statements here in Romans, he says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The title of my message today is The Gospel in Romans, The Power of of God Unto Life and Deliverance. And this is part two of that message. We've only been dealing with two or three verses here, but we recognize that it's so packed with, with, with so much theological and biblical content that it takes a couple of messages at least to begin to unravel what Paul is saying here. Entire books, indeed, in, uh, very large volumes have dedica- been dedicated to these verses in Romans. As I said in part one of our series, uh, the passage we're looking at today is indisputably the theme of Romans. And understanding it is of utmost importance if we are to understand the rest of this letter. In part 1, we covered verses 15 and much of verse 16. So today we intend to finish verse 16 and go on to 17. And we're going to cover it as exhaustively as we can. But it is incumbent upon all of us to take this home, to study it on our own, for the Spirit of God illuminates all of our minds and our hearts. So I want this again to be a primer for your continued study. Let's go to the text. Romans chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 says this, So as much as is in me, Paul says, I am ready, I'm eager, 
to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse 15 in in particular here. Paul says, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now, we've already established, we've already established in our previous messages that the church, the churches in Rome are highly regarded. They're highly regarded by Paul. He spoke highly of their faith in the first parts of this chapter. And news of their faith had traveled throughout the ancient world. Therefore, when Paul says he wants to preach the Gospel to a bunch of Christians, he highly regards, we can be sure the term Gospel means much more than how it is traditionally defined. Indeed, as we learned last time, and I want to bring up a similar slide, the term Gospel, the meaning of Gospel, cannot simply be reduced to the message of salvation by faith in Christ, though it often implies that. Gospel means good news and begs the question, good news about what? Gospel means good news. And here in verses 15, 16, and 17, as in much of the New Testament, the term gospel often encompasses more than merely eternal salvation by faith in Christ. It's as if Paul is telling the Christians in Rome, I have more gospel. More good news to share with you about the abundant blessings we have in Christ. Good news of eternal salvation, yes, but that's not all. Jesus offers so much more in the here and now. In the here and now, by the power of the Spirit who lives in you. And I can't wait to tell you about this Gospel, Paul says. This good news. Why is he eager? Why does he wish to proclaim more good news to the church in Rome? He says in verse 16, For I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of this, the Gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Paul is eager to preach the Gospel, to speak of the good news of Christ. Why is he eager? Because he's proud of it. He knows firsthand, he knows firsthand of the many abundant blessings that are available in Christ. And he knows that power is resident in the message. And it's mediated by the message of Jesus Christ, divine power unto salvation. You know, last night, not last night, Friday night, um, uh, my wife and I were were preparing the home to host a baby shower. Uh, And as we were preparing the home, uh, we had uh, removed a dining room table that was kind of a just, it was from her parents and it was just kind of a makeshift thing. We'd put it there. We didn't particularly, it wasn't our style, but we put it there because we hadn't found a dining room table yet. And so we moved, uh, Dustin helped me move the dining room table to the garage and, uh, and that forced me on Friday night, that forced me to take the boxes of the dining room table I had purchased and begin to assemble them. And so I, I knew I had to be forced to do it. Okay, let's get the real table out. Let's bring the boxes in, four boxes. And I had to assemble this dining room table that we had purchased. Well, it's a late at night, Friday night, and I'm pulling out the drill and getting everything ready. And I go to, uh, 
to uh, you know drill in the first screw and what happens to uh, my uh, Makita cordless drill? I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So, I pull out the charger, I plug it in, I'm looking at some instructions for about five minutes, I go back, I plug it in, I take it back, I plug it in, I look at the directions some more. This went on for three hours, friends, three hours, because I was too stubborn to wait. I knew I had to get it done that night, and so I'm doing the hand stuff, and then I'm going back and getting what little charge I have. It was It was pathetic. It was pathetic. But I got it done. Three hours later, I got it done. That dining room table is there. I needed power. I needed power, and the charge was in short supply. Every five minutes it went out, and I had to plug it back in, and then it went out, and I had to plug it back in, and oh, what a mess. God's power is not like that. It doesn't have a five-minute charge. It's not good for a time. It's always good. It's always charged. Every time the message of Christ is proclaimed, there is a powerful charge that is set off. Human hearts are transformed. People go from death to life. There's inherent power in the message of Christ. Tom Wright says this, N.T. Wright, he says, Paul has already spoken of God's power raising Jesus from the dead. Now he speaks of power again. But it's a power which goes on working. Wherever people like Paul or anyone with the same commission declare that Jesus is Lord. Power is resident in the message of Christ. It is mediated to us through that message. The power of salvation. He continues on, Paul does, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Now when we came across the word Gospel in verse 15, we came to realize that Paul used that word to mean more than simply its traditional meaning of eternal salvation by faith in Christ. How else could we, uh, excuse me, how else could we explain uh, why he desired to preach the gospel to Christians? Certainly, the term gospel meant more than that. He meant to say that, that inherent in that term is, is is a greater understanding. And just as we came to expect more from the term gospel, I suggest we should come to expect more from the term salvation in the book of Romans, in the letter to the Romans. We should come to expect more from this term than how it is traditionally defined. Paul does not use this word in the traditional sense of merely salvation from hell. Um, he means so much more than that. And we looked briefly last week. We, we said when you come to gospel, you ask the question, good news about what? When you come to the word salvation, you ask the question, salvation to or from what? And we, we added a list of things, a list of uh, interpretive options here. It could, be, could mean rescue, this term salvation. It could mean deliver. It could mean defend. It could mean heal, preserve, make whole, give victory, prosper, even avenge. And then you've got to answer the question, is this physical or spiritual? And then you've got to answer the question, is this temporal or eternal? Salvation in the New Testament 
And, salva- and the term salvation in Greek, as it's used throughout the ancient Greek culture, in biblical and non-biblical language, meant a variety of things. Particularly in, in, the, in the regular uh, non-Christian world, it meant well-being, good health. And so when Paul uses that term, we should be hesitant to jump to the conclusion that it's strictly and utterly salvation from hell. It is more than that in the gospel, uh, in the book of Romans. In fact, a careful look, as we considered last week, a careful look of the New Testament words on salvation will reveal that nearly two-thirds of the time, salvation from hell is not what's in focus. And we appeal, we appealed to Romans 10, 13, and 14 last time we met. I'm not going to go over that again, but I would suggest to you that Romans 10, verses 13 and 14, is indisputable evidence that salvation means more than salvation from hell. There's indisputable evidence in that text. Okay, we've said that we need to widen our parameters. All right, now let's get to it. What are the parameters of salvation in Romans? If we need to widen it, how far do we need to widen it according to the book of Romans? What evidence is there in the book of Romans that would cause us to enlarge the parameters of this term used by Paul. What does it mean to be saved in Romans? What is salvation in Romans? I want to say first, and this is the foundation upon which all of this is built. First and foremost, salvation in Romans is this. It is being justified by faith in Christ. Uh, Romans, those are chapter designations. Chapter 3, the second part, to the first part of chapter 5. Undeniably, there is the emphasis of justification by faith, which is the foundation upon which our salvation is built. But Paul, interestingly enough, and this is kind of crazy to think about, the terms save and salvation, the terms save and salvation, are never used in this section of Romans. Never once. It is not until chapter 5, verse 9, that you see the term salvation after Paul has already established the truth of justification by faith. So that's a phenomenal, phenomenal concept that, that if Paul were meaning to suggest that our eternal salvation, that when we are... Uh, believe in Christ and we're declared righteous and, and we have the uh, opportunity right then and there eternally to be with God forever, Paul never uses the term save or salvation to describe that experience. He always uses the term justify or be made righteous. That's, that's, that's powerful evidence here that salvation is larger than just that. Secondly, and now we're getting closer to our meaning, it is experiencing Spirit-filled resurrection life in the here and now. What do I mean by that? I'm going to give five sub-points to this in the book of Romans. First, it's coming. Here it comes. Real freedom from the power of sin. And I'm going to use the word real here frequently in this, in these five uh, subcategories because I want you to re- I want you to get Paul's point here. He's not saying, he's not saying there's some esoteric uh, freedom that we can have from sin. No, Paul's saying you can have, you can have freedom from the power of sin because of the Spirit of God who lives in you. You can appropriate that power right here. Right now, does that mean we're going to go on to sinless perfection? No. It does mean, though, that we have real power 
to overcome by the Spirit, to overcome sin's power over us. Secondly, and he, he speaks of that in Romans 6, replete through Romans 6, that's the concept of salvation there. Secondly, real power uh, to think, behave, and live as Christ. Okay, so we have freedom from sin, we, are, we have the capacity to overcome the power of sin, and here we have real power to think and to behave and to live as Christ. He's going to speak of that in much of chapter 7, the first part of chapter 8, and the whole section of chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 is about Christian life as Christ would have us to, uh, live it. C. It's about real peace, contentment, hope, and security in the face of any adversity. Paul is going to suggest that the saved person is one who can look at the travails of life and say, I have peace through it. I have contentment in this. I, I maintain hope in what is ahead of me. I have security that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Paul suggests strongly in Romans 8 that the one who is experiencing salvation in full is one who is receiving peace in the midst of anything. Anything they can handle by the Spirit of God as they, as they walk in the Spirit. D. It is real, and, and the, these last two are not always discussed, but I'm going to emphasize them here. Uh, I think they should take a, a, a stronger seat at the table in the, in the discussion of salvation. It is a real boldness and courage to confess Christ before men. We see this particularly in Romans 10, 9 through 13, a passage we looked at. We'll get to that you know, later on in our study. But Paul is suggesting there that real boldness and courage, those who call on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Those who confess Christ will be saved. Not in the sense of justified, but in the sense of being delivered. God will hear their plea and He will come to their aid and they will be in union with Him. And that leads to the, the last section there, E. Real protection, or we might say deliverance from God's wrath. And this is replete through the book of Romans, often overlooked. Often overlooked in Romans is the concept of deliverance from wrath. Paul's going to say in verse 17 today, the righteousness of God is revealed. But then he's going to say in the very next verse, and the wrath of God is also being revealed. And so there's this, there's this tension between receiving the righteousness of God and at the same time living in a world where the wrath of God is actually at work. Not to its fullest extent, but we see in, in many ways the wrath of God at work in our world. And coming wrath of a great degree. And Paul says the saved one is one who has protection, who invokes the name of God, calls on the name of the Lord to be saved, and receives deliverance from wrath. Particularly, and I, I, I didn't cite it so much there, but particularly chapters 9, 10, and 11 demonstrate that, 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 that the Jewish people, Paul says, that, that Israel is right now in that state of, of suppression of the truth. They're under the temporal judgment of God. But Paul says they're going to come out of that when they call on Me after having believed in Me, Jesus says. Jesus says that the people of Israel who are currently suppressing the truth and who currently don't have a knowledge of God are under the temporal divine 
judgment of God, which will be released, according to Romans 9, 10, and 11, when they believe in Him and call on the name of the Lord for help. It's interesting that in our eschatological studies, you know, those of us who maintain a pre-millennial, pre-tribulational view of the end times, the last thing that Israel does is call out for help. And God comes to defend her. He saves her in that sense. He saves her to the uttermost. Okay. Those five subsets. And then third and finally, it is anticipating and awaiting our final eternal glorification. Anticipating and awaiting. Looking forward to our final eternal glorification. These are the things that I put forth as a comprehensive understanding of salvation in Romans. Some, some like to emphasize the justification side. I think that doesn't do it justice. Others uh, highly emphasize the deliverance from wrath. I think that they're on to something, but I think that that overstates what salvation is in Romans. I think a collective sense, uh, much like the term gospel entails, the collective good news of Christ, so also, and, and the abundant collective blessings that come in, through Christ, so also the term salvation in Romans is used loosely and encompasses so much uh, of the things that we have discussed here. This is our starting point. This is our thesis statement. This is, our, this is uh, what we're putting forth that needs to be tested by the book to see if it rings true. That, uh, so there, there we have it. Salvation in Romans. Uh, I have the, the list of passages, if you'd like them. The passages which speak of save and salvation from which I've drawn these. There are a few others. But this we got to, we got to uh, most of them here. I want to bring up two passages briefly just to, just to emphasize where, what we're saying in salvation. We're talking in Hebrews 7.25, Therefore He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost, comprehensively, those who come to God through Him. And in 2 Peter 1, 2 and 3, Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as His divine power, we've heard that before, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's a comprehensiveness to the salvation that, that other authors see as well. And I think Paul is saying here in Romans. But again, the starting point, and I do not want to de-emphasize this. The starting point for the kind of comprehensive salvation that Paul wants us to have is undoubtedly faith in Christ. None of us None of the salvation that Paul speaks of in Romans is accessible to us without faith. And so he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. While this wellspring of salvation uh, is, is, is comprehensive and it's deep and it's rich, it starts with faith. And I want to ask all of us the question, if we want this, if we want the, that list, that comprehensive sense of salvation... You've got to believe in Christ. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you believe that He is the One who gives you eternal life with God? Have you put your faith in Him? You have to start there. Until you do, none of this discussion is going to be meaningful. You're not going to be able to grow. You're not going to be able to experience what Paul suggests is what we should be experiencing in the here and now. You have to believe in Christ. 
So I encourage you, if you have never done so, put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and you can start on a road that is powerful. Now this wellspring of salvation, Paul says, is universally accessible. It's for everyone who believes. But Paul also quickly reminds his readers that these blessings are particularly available to the Jew. Now why would he say this? Or recall for a moment the, 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 the makeup of the church. It's a Jewish church and a Gentile church, right? In, in Rome, the churches are a multi, uh, there, there are multi-ethnic groups going on. Um, the, 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 the Jews had most likely, the, the Messianic Jews had most likely come in, started the church perhaps, or perhaps it was some you know, Gentile believers who had traveled to Jerusalem and were there at the day of Pentecost. They'd come back, they had started the church, but undoubtedly the Jews took a prominent place explaining the Old Testament Scriptures to the church. They rose up in levels of teaching and respect and authority because they knew the Hebrew Scriptures. They could explain what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. But then Claudius, the emperor of Rome, kicked them out for a number of years. And so for five, ten years they were gone. And now they're coming back to a church that is now largely dominated by the Gentiles, the Greeks, the non-Jewish believers. Paul is suggesting here in 16, he says, look, let us remember the promise of salvation, while universally accessible to everyone who believes, is particularly, first and foremost, given to the Jew. It was given to Abraham. It was through that family that all the nations would be blessed. And so Paul here emphasizes the universality of salvation. It's offered to all who believe, but particularly he emphasizes the prominent place of the Jewish believer, of the Jewish person who was committed, the oracles of God, to share with the world salvation by faith in Messiah. And so, Paul there is elevating the status of the Messianic believers in the Gentile church. He's saying, respect them. Honor them. Listen to them. They understand, perhaps, the Old Testament Scriptures a little bit better. And let them teach us and lead us in those respects. I know I often consult. Um, I, I, I appreciate consulting Messianic Jewish literature. Messianic Jewish scholarship. They, they seem to have a, a corner on things. When it is a uh, ethnic Jewish person who believes in Christ and who writes a commentary, there's a richness there that is often absent from a, a Gentile Christian. And I appreciate that and I learn from that. The blessings of salvation first revealed to the Jews, promised in the Scriptures. And despite the fact that Israel's rejected Christ largely, Paul wants to reiterate his des the desire of God to again extend the mercy to them. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In it, in what? In the Gospel of Christ, of course. For in it, in the Gospel of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is the righteousness of God? Great question. Here we go. What is the righteousness of God? Of God, This is a tremendous question that we've got to answer. So let's go ahead and bring that question up to the forefront here. What is the righteousness of God? Three interpretive options have been given, and these are all very good options with substantiation in the book of Romans. Number one, it could be the quality of righteousness and justice in God, much like an attribute that we have or a quality, the characteristic that we have as a person. 
Maybe we're a peaceful person. Maybe we're a generous person. God is a righteous and just person. He is a righteous and just God. And perhaps that's what the righteousness of God means. You can see this perhaps in Romans 3, verse 5, and also verse 26. But number two, there's also another option. It could could mean the righteous action of God in saving and delivering His people. We see this in Romans 3, 25 and 26. There There is righteous action on the part of God. And in fact, I would suggest the Old Testament primarily uses the righteousness of God in that, in that sense. And number, third, number three, the status of righteousness. God reckons to us by faith in justific- at the moment of justification. When we put our faith in Christ, we are imputed a status of righteousness, the status of God's righteousness. And when He looks upon us, He sees Christ in us. He's put the sins of the world on the cross of Christ, on the person of His Son at Calvary. He's taken our sins, put them on Him, and He's imputed to us forensic righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And so when He looks at us, He doesn't see our sin, He sees His Son. Status of righteousness, the righteous action, the quality of righteousness, which is it? Douglas Moo, uh, perhaps the one of the best commentaries on Romans there is, uh, writes plainly in his commentary on Romans, these options are not necessarily mutually exclusive. That is to say, a combination of one, two, or all three of them could be in view by the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter. But I would suggest, and and Mu does as well, that the latter two options seem to get closer to the main thrust of what Paul is trying to say here. Because Paul is going to say, remember this, and look at, look at your verse 17. What does it say? In verse 17 it says, for the righteousness of God is, what? Revealed. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is, what? Revealed. Action. Evidence for number two there. Now, there's more evidence, but that's good evidence for option number two. It seems that Paul is, is walking through this idea of the righteous action of God in bringing salvation is here. It is now. It is available. Just as much as the wrath of God is being revealed right now against all those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Good evidence for saving action. However, look at the very next phrase in verse 17. He says... For in it, in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. There's an emphasis on faith there. And there's an emphasis on justification by faith throughout the entire book. And so, the evidence for number three looks strong as well. The status of righteousness. God reckons to us by faith at the moment of justification. The majority of time Paul mentions righteousness in Romans, the word faith is right nearby. And we see this particularly in Romans 3, 21 and 22. So options 2 and 3 both work very, very nicely as definitions of the righteousness of God, even option 1 to an extent. In the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the activity of God is at work. His righteousness is being revealed in action. And for those of us who believe in Christ, God's righteousness is imputed 
to us on account of our faith. Now, if push comes to shove and we simply had to decide between these options, I would take option three. But not far behind would be option two. And not far behind that would be option one. They are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And so I want us to to see this in perhaps a collective sense, much like we see gospel in a collective sense, much like we see salvation in a collective sense. Paul allows for for this uh, comprehensiveness to the understanding of these terms. All right, particularly in the middle of verse 17, for in it, in the gospel of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now here Paul makes clear that God's righteousness is granted to us by faith. The phrase from faith to faith is a difficult one to translate. I would suggest that it most likely means faith and only faith. Or faith and nothing else but faith is what is needed to appropriate the righteousness of God. I think interpretive options that go past that just don't don't make a lot of sense. I would refer you, if you really want to study that that phrase, I'd refer you to 2 Corinthians 2.16. 2 Corinthians 2.16, where you see uh, some similar grammar, if you really want to get technical. 2 Corinthians 2.16 speaks of death leading to death and life leading to life. And here we have faith to faith. I think it means faith and only faith is what appropriates the righteousness of God. And now Paul finishes verse 17. He quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 and he says the just shall live by faith. We've heard this before. Scholars are beginning, uh, we need to be aware of this as a church, because we're beginning to see some changes in the interpretation of this, in the, in the translation of this text. In fact, some of your Bibles might, uh, those of you who don't have a New King James, you might even see this translation a little bit different uh, in your Bibles that, that are going to be published in the near future here. Because scholars are beginning to rethink the translation of this phrase. The Greek Word order is slightly different than our English word order. And if we were to be precise about the Greek word order, it would look like this. The just by faith shall live, rather than the just shall live by faith. Now you might think, well, I mean, come on, that, that doesn't really, that, that's kind of a real minor nuance. That doesn't really make much of a change to the thrust of the text. Uh, not necessarily. Um, But there are some interesting implications here if, in fact, we take the Greek order in sequence. And the the bottom line, just to be clear, that bottom line, the just by faith shall live, is the order of of the Greek. So it would be a, a more technical way of translating this phrase. If we do that, if we do that, it is not as trivial as we might think. In fact, a good case can be made that these words... The just by faith shall live. Encompass a small outline of the next seven chapters of the book of Romans. You say, how is that possible? Take a look. Next slide, please. The just by faith shall live. We have two concepts here. Let's bring up the next point. In chapters 1 through 4, particularly chapters 2 through 4, but in the first four chapters, we see the concept of justification by faith. Through and through. That's all Paul's concerned about. Justification by faith. The just by faith concept. Chapters 1 through 4. Chapters 5 through 8. Notice what happens. 
We talk, all of a sudden, Paul talks about what I would call superlative Christian living. That is to say, Spirit-filled, Spirit-led, resurrection life. And it's interesting that the word live is there throughout chapters 5-8. through eight. And take, In fact, take a look at this. In chapters 1-4, through four, next slide, faith is used 34 times. The, the, the concept of the just one by faith, or justification by faith, is used 34 times. The word life, three times. Ah, but in chapters 5 through 8, what do we see? Almost the opposite. We see life is used 25 times and faith is used three times. That's, that, that's powerful. That's compelling. Now, we don't, we don't base our theology just because of some word occurrences. We don't do that. We pay attention to context. We pay attention to what's happening in the text. But this is significant. This is significant stuff here. We don't see the concept of life, living in chapters 1 through 4. We see the concept of the justification by faith. The just one by faith. And then later on, we get to superlative Christian living. Life as it's meant to be. Faith is its foundation, sure. But more than that, moving on to Christian, superlative Christian living. I think this is a powerful argument. Um, one that gives good evidence for translating that last phrase in verse 17 as the just by faith shall live. Paul wants the Roman Christians to experience the superlative power found in Christ. He wants them to live, to be saved to the uttermost. And he will speak of that superlative life beginning in chapter 5. But first, he wishes to remind his readers of the fundamental issue of faith in Christ without which they would never even have the opportunity to live in the way that Paul speaks. Coming to a conclusion. Romans 1, 15 through 17. I want to read it and interject some comments. Paul says, I am ready to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome. You are already Christians. But I have more good news to tell you about the Christian life. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation. There is spiritual power in Christ beyond what we can imagine, helping us to live victoriously. This power is made readily available for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it, in the message of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. God is at work. He's lavishly bestowing His salvation and power upon mankind from faith to faith. We receive God's gift by faith. And now that God has justified us and given us His power, as it is written, the just by faith shall live. Eternal life, yes, but so much more than that. We, are, we who are justified by faith now have God's Spirit, God's power. We have all that is needed, all the tools needed to live exactly as God intends for us in victory, in hope, in boldness, in freedom from sin and trial and tribulation. Romans, in a nutshell, we, we, we looked last week, we were sketching out what does this mean? 
What does this look like? We were talking about the, the artist who, who sketches and he can't quite see what he's doing until he gets deeper into the, into, the, into the work and it becomes readily apparent what is happening. I think we're becoming aware of what's happening in Romans. I think it is this. There is good news of God's power in Jesus Christ. Power to save us to the uttermost. This power is first appropriated when we are justified by faith in Christ. Once justified and indwelt by the Spirit, we are enabled with real divine power. As we walk in the Spirit, to be delivered from sin and wrath and to live a victorious Christian life. And so while we wait with anticipation for our final glorification, we know that in the here and now, we can attain a superlative foretaste of our future and final redemption in the kingdom of God. We've talked a lot, of the- a lot of theology today, right? We've talked a lot of doctrine. A lot of stuff that's in our head. Um, but this is so much more than what's supposed to be in our head. Paul is suggesting that there is power, divine power from God, in you who believe to live now. Not one day, but now. Right now, you have the freedom to overcome the sin problems. The Spirit gives you that freedom. Right now, you have the ability, the capacity to think and behave and live like Christ. Right now, you can appropriate the Spirit's power to give you boldness to proclaim Christ at work in the neighborhood at home. Right now, you can call on the name of the Lord, you who believe, and be saved to be delivered from the consequences and the wrath of God on this earth. You can invoke His name for help and in union with Him, in cooperation as you walk in the Spirit, you can receive deliverance, Paul says. The power is available now to a superlative degree. It is a great foretaste of what is to come. And I wonder, I wonder, I wonder how many of us know that we have this power. Do we live like we have this power? Do you live like you have this power? Paul is going to teach us how to appropriate it in the book of Romans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want, we desire to be a people who not only knows Your Son in faith, but knows the power that Your Spirit gives to us now for living victoriously. Father, we confess that we still live in the flesh. We still, we still forget about what is in us. About who is in us. And we, we, we go through life and we, go, we, we have a habit to go back to the same sin. 
And we have a habit to be shy about our faith. And we have a habit to just give up growing spiritually in, in the attributes that you would have us grow. We give up, we, we, we punt on third down, Father. We give up too early. I, we don't want to give up too early, Father. We want to go on to salvation. To experience it to a superlative degree, which we know is readily available to us now. Father, help us as we read the book of Romans to not only know it in our heads, but to appropriate the power that You offer us right now that we may live victoriously in union with You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.